Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. It also kicks off season three for us. So we're really excited about that. Big news for, our, you know, Disaster Tough podcast. But this week we have Eric McNulty on here. You can probably tell on the screen there that he's the author of Your It. We're a big fan of that book. In fact, our sister show, EM, uh, let's see, EM Speaks, the webinar has had it on there. Uh, he was talking about Urit and those concepts behind that book. He's also been on Todd DeVoe's show, a big fan of his, with EM Weekly. Again, another sister show of our Readiness Lab Network. Eric McNulty comes from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative out of Harvard. He has tons of experience. He's definitely a thought leader. He and I caught up in New York just a few weeks ago. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to be part of the conversation. Yeah, so... You know, I, I, as mentioned, obviously, in your introduction, you, you are one of those people who are looking at innovating the field of emergency management by looking at the different conceptual uh, aspects of or even the functional aspects of our field. And we had a fun conversation sitting there, uh, you know, getting ready to hear Pete Gaynor and Craig Fugate uh, be interviewed by Todd in New York. And we had this fun conversation where we were starting to name things that of, of ways that we could innovate our field, especially at, at the FEMA level. You know, what is FEMA doing and FEMA's role in emergency management? Um, but before we get into that, uh, because again, I'm a fan of your book, I think it's a, it's a really good, does really good thing for our industry. Can you just give us a, a quick little plug for those uh, listeners who might be interested in reading it? Always happy to give a plug for the book. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. Um, what we've done in your it is capture about 15 years of stories and study of leaders in the field doing uh, disaster preparedness and response. Mm -hmm. And so what we at the MPLI do is we deploy, try and be with people during events or immediately thereafter to see what are the tough decisions, what are they wrestling with, what are the really good calls they make. Try to capture that, distill it, and put in there not just stories, but practical tools and skill sets that people could apply in the field to get better. So we really wanted this to be a practical book, and I'm, it's had a really great reception in the field, I think, for that reason, because we're not trying to lecture down. We're trying to capture and, and spread out the good practices. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting way to say it. We're not trying to lecture down. Sometimes it's difficult as someone who appreciates data and analytics and um I worked for a uh, substantial tech firm after leaving the national team where I led business intelligence for a year and a half. And so I'm a huge fan of machine learning and AI and all those things. And what I find uh, in particular is that our field of emergency management doesn't attack that as much as they could. Like trying to figure out, I don't know, where the tornado is going to land next. Like our, our basic understanding of, of that is, I mean... I'm going to pop the brakes here for a second. Where we were 100 years ago versus now is phenomenal. And definitely weather data in, in terms of all the aspects of emergency management is far and beyond what anybody else is using for analytics, for sure, and understanding the physics of what's happening. But I'm, in, in terms of the decision-making process, what I find is too many people are still using, and I'm going to, I'm going to follow my gut here, and I'm sure this is like a tiring topic for people who've listened to the show because I've talked about this so much. But as someone who's actually studied this, you know, in terms of a leadership perspective and your studies of leadership, are they, are they, are they doing that? I'm going to follow my gut versus data. And what are some improvements we can make between those two sides of the house in terms of the decision-making process? I think there are a couple of important things there. And 
Um, one is I think we are not too many years away from uh, data assisted decision making for leaders being the norm. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's going to be, you're going to have to understand it because it's going to better inform you. And, and all your, all your gut is, it's important to understand your gut too. All that your, your gut is actually really good if you've seen a situation many times before. It's basically accumulated a lot of data, processed it into patterns, and it helps you react quickly. And so, like you know, the, the greatest percentage, greatest number of neural transmitters is in your brain. The second greatest number is in your gut. And they're connected by the longest nerve in your body up and down your spinal column, and they're constant, in constant communication. So if you're in a situation you've seen a lot before, that gut feeling can be a good, good guidance. I always say, then go to the data and see what it tells you. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you're in a novel situation, you want to depend less on your gut because you're probably not fully recognizing what's happening. You want to look at that data. And as I say, I think the tools are coming together. And an another guest you should have on your show is my colleague, Brian Spisak, who's looked at this really deeply in terms of, of AI and machine learning mm -hmm. and how it's going to apply to leader decisions going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we're at the point where we have the computing power. We have the data sets. We now just have to have the open minds among the leaders to realize this is this is a complement to what they do and it'll help enhance their effectiveness. It's not a threat. This show is owned and operated by professional emergency managers at Doberman Emergency Management. We apply disaster tough logic by protecting life, property, and business continuity through planning, mitigation, and training. Check us out at DobermanEMG.com or click on the show notes. Radio comms just got a major breakthrough with the L3 Harris XL Extreme 400P. It's the newest and toughest radio out there. Built by their space and tactical teams, the XL Extreme series can take a beating. 1,700 degree blast of heat, repeated 3 meter drops, rain, salt water, you name it. The XL Extreme series by L3 Harris can take it. Visit L3Harris.com to schedule your demo today. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic reusable, yes, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called the COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's extremely easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on the COVID Plus test, check out our show notes. Oh, man, you, you highlight so many areas. First of all, what a great pitch for following your gut and, and, and applying it to data. That's a, that's a great pitch. I will say that you, know, you, you brought up the novel. A catastrophic disasters, especially a type 1, not, not a black swan per se, but a type 1 event where a lot of what we're doing is trying to go by the fly, I think you're. I think you're right. Your gut can. Um, you don't have enough data for your gut to to be a hundred percent accurate. In fact, your gut usually isn't a hundred percent accurate. But emergency management rarely is. You have to be able to make a decision quickly. That's right. Um, I, you know, it's been a fun thing in, in in terms of the tech world of data driven versus data informed, and I, I really think that's just a. Um, I, I think it's it's a good way to help people understand really what it's supposed to do, but it's a branding thing, right? We right. what we really want to get to is whatever the the best case is, the best case being, you know, life sustaining, life supporting missions in the fastest and most efficient way possible. And uh, decision making that that decision making process and having the right information with the amount of time you have, that's the other problem that we have is is time. 
is um is a really interesting call out and a way to to look at that. So um way to way to kick it off the right way for sure. Yeah. You know, if I can give you a quick example, a good a good uh, example from outside emergency management, which I think is useful here, is in healthcare. So some of the larger healthcare systems now have default protocols for certain common diseases, like certain cancers. And so that rather than a doctor drawing upon his or her, you know, hundreds of cases, they are now looking at tens of thousands of cases across the system and saying, this is the default. Now you can, you can go, you can do something other than the default, but then you have to explain why. Mm. But it gives you really quickly, having looked at tens of thousands of cases, here's what looks to be the most efficacious uh, treatment plan for this particular cancer. Um, and it gives you, a, you can, so you can draw upon that larger knowledge. It doesn't take away your freedom to make a different decision, but it makes you think about to why, why am I going against the data? And, and it helps you, uh, I think you really, again, it really helps inform the decision rather than dictate it. Well, we, there's, um, there's a very popular phrase in emergency management that says every disaster is different. And, um, that that's that's like me that's like me thinking well every cancer must be different or every you know but i can name 36 man-made and natural disasters that are going to act the same right if i get in there and i see a hurricane okay i'm going to see a wind event i'm going to see a flooding event i'm going to see a surge event and i can start making predictions and or you know we do we we, we say every disaster is different, but we stage resources and where we stage resources and where we put up shelters and how that supply chain is staged. All those factors start to go in, into play. Same thing with wildfires. We know it's going to be preceded by mudslides when you know the, the rainy season comes. So there is predictability in that. That's right. Um, and, and from, a, again, I won't go into too far in the weeds of data, but I believe there's enough data out there for us to start saying, okay, Maybe not every disaster is different. Maybe there's a lot of the same, and we need to start saying that so we understand truly routine versus crisis mode, which is a, another reference to another book that's out there, and understanding when are we truly in crisis mode, i.e., is it true novelty, or is, are we in crisis mode because we just haven't done our, we haven't done the right prep work to to make sure you know that that we're we're being as efficient as possible, and so. There's some call-outs there for sure. Yeah, in fact, I just I just completed a research study went public today actually. Uh, interviewed with nine global companies around their response to COVID, and one of the places they at least a couple of them tripped up was because they thought coronavirus is novel. They sort of threw out all the existing protocols and thought we had to start from scratch, and it turned out no. It's just like yeah, of the ten things you had to worry about, four of them may have been truly new and you have to improvise there, but six of them actually were basic emergency management best practice. Here's what we ought to be doing. And so I think we ought to be looking at a continuum of events here, not sort of a, an either or that will get us to a much healthier place. Well, you're, you're getting to another, uh, and I have all these passions. And one of the passions <laughs> to me is that public health is great for long-term trends, not great for response. You should be looking at your emergency manager because that's, that's the person right. who can do response. And public health is a, one of the pillars that the emergency manager should talk to. The reason being, in 2014, I was working at the National Cancer Institute where we were housing the Ebola patients, Building 50. My job was to make sure that there was no uh, patient spread in Building 50. Was I a doctor? Absolutely not. But I could work with the doctors. I could understand PPE. I can understand the protocols. And I can make sure that it was contained. And because of that, when I 
went over to another federal agency, I got put on a task force to understand what we should do for a pandemic response to reduce spread. And we focused a lot of messaging. We focused a lot on the stuff. And when the pandemic hit, I was contacting some of my friends in DC and saying, you know, we, I know we have a plan here. Where's the plan? And um, by the, by the middle of March, I sent a, uh, a communication out to uh, some of those former members. And I'm like, Hey, we're now looking at a multi-year thing if we don't get this under control. And they all agreed. And, you know, lo and behold, we're in a multi-year issue because the messaging has been really bad. I mean, that's not novel. Uh, PPE, the, you know, the, the work from home thing has, has, seen, it, it has seemingly been a novelty, a concept for people, but they have been doing work from home before. Um, the, the one really interesting thing about COVID is the case studies that will be able to come from it. If you said in 2014, hey, we want to put every child at home for a year to do school at home and see what, what the impacts of, of doing that would be. And then people would just like laugh at you out the door. So the, in right. terms of a case study, we can see the impacts of a cultural shifts, uh, societal shifts. And um, that's, that's really interesting as well. So the fact that you're talking to healthcare and the fact that you're looking at uh, corporations and how they're doing uh, COVID and doing research on that, I'm sure that there, this will be a wealth of learning that, that the learning growth should go way up from uh, this event. Let's hope so. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there, lessons you know, there, learned versus lessons um, applied is a whole different thing, you know? Yeah. Sometimes we like to say uh, you, have to, you have to go for the lowest common denominator. And um, I don't think we do that. I think we get pigeonholed and thinking, oh, my way is right. If they don't like it, they're dumb. Yeah. And uh, that's, a, that's a stupid way to look at it is in terms of just being totally honest. Like you want people on your side. And creating, creating trenches of how people feel about things is, is never effective. And, um, you know, a good example of that is we've had gangs, rival gangs, stay in the same shelter. How do people who traditionally don't get along stay in the same shelter? Well, you, you come up with compromises and you work with leaders and you say, hey, there's a, something bigger here that's happening. And I didn't really see that in the pandemic. So that's a, that's a whole other thing. But... In terms of New York, uh, getting to like kind of the bulk of our conversation, we were talking about several things, changes that we would like to see in the field of emergency management. And it was, it was kind of fun because as Craig and Pete were on the stage with Todd, we were kind of looking at each other for everybody and we're like, oh, called that, called that. Um, and so let me just ask you, for the sake of our audience, if you were going to look at the field of emergency management... What changes would you like to see in our field? And more importantly, how do we actually implement some of those changes? What are the solutions that you think that we need? Well, I think I'm, I'm going to get a little bit wonky on you here for just for a moment, because um, it's one of the findings that came out of this coronavirus study as well, is that I think we need to engage in what's known as double loop learning. Um, so single loop learning is you try something, you get it, you see what happens, and you may adjust your strategy or tactics. The mm -hmm. double loop learning is when you go back, when you get that feedback, and you, and you actually question your underlying assumptions. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where, where emergency management needs to go with questioning the underlying assumptions from when FEMA was founded, from when, uh, you know, the, as the field has grown, 
what's still true, what has changed. Mm. So for example, I think one of the things we've seen in COVID is that our, our traditional uh, belief in a bottom-up system, which works really well for a local or regional disaster, mm. doesn't work well at all for a national or continent-wide, or in this case, global incident. Yeah. Because that the, the you know, I can't tell you how many stories I heard of people having to deal with all the the different guidance from different states and localities, again, for, for organizations operating across the country, uh, and it gets worse and you get international. Um, that, that doesn't, that, that bottom-up piece doesn't work. So I think we have to be thinking about, one thing I want to want to look at is when can you actually flip a switch and say, this is coming now more top-down, and we're going we're gonna to have to have some coordination across the country, across jurisdictions, uh, in, in, in order to be able to address it uh, effectively. Um, I think we ought to be looking at um, some of the obvious things I'd be looking to do is say, how, how do we get top talent to really want to choose this as a field? I mean, look at the options you have when you're in, when you're coming into school. And I know there's already a high school, I believe in New York, it's, it's uh, teaching emergency management where you can, you can concentrate on that. But how do we actually attract top talent? Not that we haven't got a lot of talented people in this field, but many of the most talented I've, I've met sort of found their way accidentally. Like I never thought of emergency management, but then I had this opportunity, or I met somebody who told me. Um, yeah. I drifted into it. Uh, even Pete Gaynor, you know, he was career in the Marine Corps, and he came out. And he said, "What do I do? Where do my skills go?" And he wound up working first in Providence, then Rhode Island, then FEMA. Right. Um, so I think that, and I think of of just the data conversation earlier. We thinking rethinking how we train people. Um, to be to be leaders, to be just really understand decision making, and it is a science behind decision making. To understand how to use data, it's going to be much more complex to operating in this field. When you look at what we're going to have in terms of impacts of of climate, uh, we've got an aging population, which brings up all kinds of new vulnerabilities, um, and so being able to navigate that is, is going to be a, a really tricky thing for folks in the field. And so I think we need to be. Well, I would be making changes to make the education, uh, bring them up several levels of sophistication in some of these key areas of being able to think forward, make decisions, uh, and not just do the basics of emergency management. The basics don't go away. They're still important. Um, but I think if you're going to lead in this field, you're going to have to be up there with the top folks who are working in, in the corporate world or in, in uh, senior roles in government. And so uh, that's some of the places I'd make some changes. Yeah, I think those are, are phenomenal call-outs in terms of the sophistication. And that's kind of what we were talking a little bit earlier in that sophistication process of doing that. Um, you know, processes, you know, we have Rodney Melsick on here is basically the, the godfather. And, and yes, truly the godfather of emergency planning, modern day emergency planning, because he's retired, but he's still influencing everybody in the field. And um, he's very active in that. And he says that process is more important than outcome. And um as one of my mentors and, and working with him directly on the national team, my, uh, my, my change in that is just slight, slightly different. It's process is just as important as outcome. You still have to have the outcome, but emergency managers can understand process. And I'm not talking about paper pushers or what firefighters think emergency managers do. I'm talking about us as a field in our own culture as coordinators uh, working in that process. One thing that I think is really fascinating is that Brock Long on my show, Pete Gaynor on my show, Craig Fugate on my show, and then up on stage, Craig and Pete saying the same thing is FEMA is largely a funding organization. And the problem with a, 
a largely, uh, you know, funding organization perspective versus emergency services and more importantly, emergency response, the small areas of FEMA that focus on, on uh, the national IMATs or kind of the regional IMATs too, but really the national IMATs and USAR is that they don't really do funding, especially USAR. USAR is not doing funding, but their certificate right. comes through FEMA. And so, um, you know, if you're talking about a top-down approach and you're talking about a more focused approach, what FEMA does for the federal government and that coordination in the Stafford Act and Pekemra and all those things work well in a large-scale disaster, hospital emergency managers, organizational campus, whatever, they have to figure out, like, how does this make sense for me? And they, 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 it's kind of a hodgepodge of ideas of, like, well, I'll never have, you know, my, uh, you know, I'll never have a 204, but what do I have? And so they, they kind of make it up as they go. Yeah. And I would like to see standardization um, in process so that it cannot just apply to the federal government, but it can apply to the other side of the house and really call FEMA what it is. It's the, you know, the, the funding of emergency services, you know, it's the, it's not the, the actual emergency managers themselves. One other question I have for you is if we, if we recognize that, especially if heads of FEMA are recognizing that they are truly most of the organization doesn't do the emergency management part, the emergency part of emergency management. Who else should take that on? Should somebody else take that on? If those basics remain, but you're saying that changes should be made, who else, who else should jump in the game? You know, I, I'm of a couple of minds of that one because I, I on the one hand, don't want to spread that out so, so much that you get a lot of divergence in terms of approach and, and you come up with new problems of how to co uh, collaborate and coordinate. Yeah. Um, there perhaps should be a, a, a part of FEMA or maybe FEMA is, the, is a funding agency and then there is a response. I would like to see it, the, them focusing on strengthening state and regional level response capabilities uh, because I think they'll be they'll be faster they'll be more, more nimble they're better connected to the uh, the, the communities they're going to have to serve uh, but I also think there needs to be recognition this is my drum I keep beating since you beat yours on data um, is that I, I think we are in the early stages of, of an age that we cannot respond our way out of when That's you right. look at the floods the wildfires that the recent tornadoes uh, things are going we simply you, that the, the the challenges are too big and too complex to simply respond your way out of, and so preparedness has got to get its groove back um, and be thinking. And that's where I think actually FEMA can have a lot of influence in terms of what they fund, what they insure, that the uh, flood insurance program uh, to to shape policy in ways that um, keep us better, you know, preventing things, prepared for things. So so the the lights and sirens side of the house, as it were is still part of what you do, but you're not relying on them as much. And um, so I think we, we need heroes who are a little bit less in the dramatic part of the, uh, of the life cycle and more in the uh, getting us ready. Because I said, I just, we can't respond our way out of things that are this, this big, this fast moving and this complex and this constant. I mean, there's no season for anything anymore. They yeah. all just kind of roll into each other. Yeah, I agree with that. And talk about the wildfires. I mean, the, 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 the fire crews, the, um, um, the wildland firefighters or the um, trying to think of the name, but the, the guys who go out there on those mountains and expect to do that for three months, essentially from late July through October and really maybe even August through November. That's kind of like the height of traditionally of wildfire season in California. That's gone. 
So now you have somebody on the side of a mountain year round, that exhaustion takes a toll, takes a toll on the body. It takes a toll on the mind. You have turnover. Like it's, it's, it's unsustainable. What you're saying is, is truly the way that we're looking at response is unsustainable. I totally agree. That's why I'm not a fan of resiliency anymore. Um, I think it's, you know, the idea of resiliency being the king of emergency management or like that, that favorite word for everybody. I don't want to have to bounce back. If I have to keep bouncing back, I'm not going to be able to bounce back eventually. I've been to right. the same cities, the same towns for multiple, uh, multiple times of the same event. And I'm like, okay, like, so the idea of like that disaster tough, like mantra or name of the company is that we want, we want to make other people, other communities more tough to be able to, to do with their own response. Because at the end of the day, that resource not, might not be coming. And even if it does come, it will be likely insufficient. And I think that's um, like your call out there is, is 100% right. Um, my, my question earlier about who should lead it, have you ever worked with um, like state guards, like the National Guard? Yes. Yeah. So and- I understand how the law works. But in terms of a local response, they are essentially the U.S. perspective of the military's humanitarian arm. Like if they're doing, they can do crowd control, they help out with floods, they clear homes, they, um, you know, they, they help put up flood barriers, they, they do wildfire response, they do a lot of things in emergency, emergency services. And so if you have a funding organization who is working on a federal perspective, and you want to get states and localities more prepared, I would say that they should start to segregate and allow states to have people who are highly trained who are working on this to, to continue to, to work on that aspect, answering to the governor. Again, this would not mess with your Title 10 or th- Title 32 or whatever that the, the right number is there, but um, it would provide a perspective where funding versus response and response is much smaller than the funding and they can separate a little bit because, you know, trying to do this isn't, isn't really working that great. I don't know. My, my two cents. Well, if you're, if you're, if you want to understand the laws that governs the national guard, then you're one of like six people in the country who do, because I've, I've looked into it and it's really complex actually what, what happens there. Yeah. Uh, and certainly you're, you're, Virginia. You're, oh my gosh. Well, yeah. yeah I, yeah, but I think that one of the challenges with the guard is they're very good, but they're very much a short-term response force uh, because yeah. they're part they're part time, they're uh, and so they can they can deploy for a couple of weeks, but then all of a sudden the economic impact of having them not on their jobs, you can't deploy them for a couple of months. And I've seen that in states where they uh, they deployed and it was great short term, but then people got to go home and it's and mm-hmm. you can't have them out there. So I think. Um, Again, I think we got to be really looking at what's our, what's the the uh, what do risks look like going forward, and data can inform a lot of this. Mm-hmm. What are our likelihood to need? Who do we need for short term, medium term, long term response as we bleed into reco- as we move into recovery? Um, and yes, I think we should be open to all the different sources of of resources and assets we can deploy against that, and figure out how do we how do we best array them against the most probable situations we're going to face. I think that's uh, the good mic drop moment of the show, and. Uh... <laughs> Geez, Eric, uh, talking about knocking it out of the park. So uh, I, I think you're right. I think we need to be open. I think things are changing. I think the data is going to be showing that it's already been showing that it's changing. The frequency of catastrophic hurricanes alone should tell us something. The frequency of uh, wildfires alone should be telling us something. The frequency of active shooters um, and 
maybe we should actually look into the real data of why that's happening instead of like the fluff pieces you hear on media and really dive in deep of why that's happening. Um, hint, there's a paper in somebody's master's program about gross narcissism and the rise of active shooters, but whatever. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of this stuff that's happening. So um, great call out. Don't want to be doomsday preppy, but you're right. We need to be nimble. We need to, we need to, to focus on what's best for the future. We're getting into new phases. You're calling that out as a thought leader. Again, uh, you're it. If, um, and this is where my wrap up here is uh, for the show. If, um, you know, if you liked what Eric just said, what you should have, that mic drop moment that he just had. And uh, you want to learn more about Eric's perspective on leadership and uh, learn how to be a better leader yourself. Read your it. Um, I'm sure Eric, you and I should uh, ha- continue this conversation. I had to, I had to stop you because you're blowing me up too much. So this is uh, this is good stuff. So well, we um, we can always continue. And always happy to talk with you, John. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So again, if you like this episode, which you should have, here's that shameless plug. You give us a five star rating and subscribe. And if you do that, um, you'll hear more great content. Maybe Eric will come back on the show. Hint, hint. We totally should have him back on the show. And we'll see you next week.